welcome to episode 251 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Andrew Swafford. Lydia Creech. And Miranda Barnwell. And in today's episode, we will be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be kicking off the always fun, fan favorite, Young Critics Watch Old Movies, version five. Woo-hoo. We got we've had the list up for about a month and a half now, so hopefully people checked it out. We got a good slate for you all. Um, I wasn't like a jab, and you know, just saying it's been up for a while. Um, we're gonna be kicking it off with silent shorts from around the world. We have a medley of different short and uh, quote short movies that. <laughs> Yeah, and, and not uh, that we're going to talk about, but uh, let's go ahead and jump into movies that we saw this week, and we can start it with a you know new release that has been playing uh, various places around the country, and, that, and I'm going to let opened it, at TIFF last year that we that we missed it. Played at TIFF last year, and I'm going to toss it over to Lydia and Andrew to introduce it. Lydia, you've seen it more recently than me, so you want to give a brief summary. Uh, yes, I did not pull up the correct information. Um, it's not a wuxia film, right? It's not a what? Wuxia film? It's a wuxia film. Okay. Okay, so Shadow, 2018 film directed by, oh my god, Zhang Yimao? Does that sound right? Yeah. He did, uh... Hero and the Great Wall. He is like a very prominent wuxia director. Um, uh, the plot, it's got one of those complicated plots too. Like a lot of plotty things happen. It. Uh, Do you want me to take it? Yes, please. I wasn't prepared. Okay, <laughs> okay sorry. So Shadow, Title refers to our main character who is serving as the quote-unquote shadow uh, to this, like, disgraced warrior guy uh, who's, he's living in hiding. He's presumed to be, um, well, he's not presumed to be dead, but his identity has been assumed by this other guy, the shadow. Uh, He's pretending to be uh, this this heroic High-ranking commander. Yeah. Um, And... He is uh, working under and living alongside uh, this kind of, mm, not necessarily tyrannical, but definitely uh, petulant and juvenile leader. Uh, This is set in like a vaguely ancient, fictional China. Um, And the, the dude who is in hiding, who has this shadow, is kind of planning this overthrow uh, of the present government. Um, and so you see that play out uh, slowly and methodically. Uh, the film is visually very unique um, in that all of the sets and all of the costumes are in complete black and white. Uh, so aside from people's skin tones uh, and the colors of blood that you see throughout the film, it, it looks like a black and white film, even though it's shot in color. Um, and there are some. There's a lot of uh, interesting slow motion used. It's 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 kind of poetic and musical the way they shoot these action scenes, and as well as some very interesting uh, weapon uh, choices. <laughs> uh, there is there is a, a just a thrilling a thrilling couple of scenes that include uh, metal dagger umbrellas uh, <laughs> that that are used in various ways. I mean, it literally. Um, but, <laughs> you have a lot of like. Ahead, uh, like 
training sequences of the shadow preparing for like a rematch duel and so he's yeah. fighting with just like an ordinary umbrella against somebody holding like a bamboo staff so mm-hmm. not so like the lead up to this and then when we actually get to this final battle like he opens his umbrella and it's like all these fucking knives and it literally took my breath away <laughs> And they just start flying off of his umbrella at times, too, which is one of the ways in which this sort qualifies as a wuxia film. It is not necessarily always the human bodies that are defying gravity uh, and uh, just breaking all rules of physics, but it is the weapons that are doing these unbelievable things as well. Miranda is cracking up over here. And I like it sounds ridiculous <laughs> saying it out loud, but yeah. it's like, like it's actually very thrilling and like a really cool moment <laughs> in the film. Like, there, I there's interesting it, thematic go ahead, sorry. Well I just don't know how to quite explain how it manages to balance this tone of like very political intrigue and like mm-hmm. it feels like very weighty things are happening like destinies are coming together or something but i mean it's an umbrella right. made out of knives like <laughs> yeah it, it the should things be that you were sometimes seeing on screen are ridiculous human Beyblades, for example, that are created uh, by layering the dagger umbrellas. But the the tone of it is always, um, like like you said, it feels it feels like a, a thing that is destined to happen and is all uh, slow and beautiful. This is, um, you know, it's interesting. This movie feels like it is mostly in the world of Zhang Yimou's other wuxia films like Hero and House of Flying Daggers. But it's, I think it's also worth remembering that it, he made a, a, a great, great, great slow cinema film that I talked about a couple weeks ago, Raise the Red Lantern. And I think he incorporates some of that um, restraint and atmosphere uh, in this movie to, to give the action a slightly different vibe. My favorite sequence in the movie uh, has, has this awesome... Uh, intercutting uh, between the a big climactic fight that is that is happening on this raised platform uh, in one area, and then it, two characters in a completely different area are having this like loot battle where they're 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 playing this classical Chinese music together, uh, and it's it's not the kind of music that you would normally associate with this kind of scene. It is not intense music. It is beautiful and soothing music and you have an interesting tonal not necessarily disconnect because it actually flows together very smoothly uh, but it it it's a it's a unique way to stage action um, this is one of my favorite movies of the year so far it's, it's in my top five at this halfway point in the year I- anything else uh from you about this movie, Lydia? I uh, don't really have anything else to add. I would just to reemphasize, it's. I think it's one of the best looking movies that come that's come out this year. It he really does a lot with the not mm-hmm. quite black, desaturated cinematography. I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, it's surprisingly bloody. <laughs> surprisingly bloody. <laughs> and a lot of the fight scenes are shot because you have to. There's these color splashes that have to happen with the blood at various points in the movie. The color, uh, it, it, it adds a lot of contrast to this thing that wouldn't exist otherwise. So they, they use that for, for dynamic effect. 
And a lot of the action scenes take place in the rain, uh, which, which add an interesting texture to it as well, uh, especially considering so many of them uh, put an emphasis on using slow motion. So if you have this grayscale color scheme, all, all like filtering through these layers and layers of rain, all in slow motion, um, I don't know. It's it's an interesting aesthetic experience. Uh, I also think this movie is is thematically rich too. Uh, but I think I would have to watch it again to really outline all that stuff. One small thing is that the umbrella is introduced as like this feminine weapon. Um, you, well, she, the yin yang symbol is very prominent. It's like on the posters, mm-hmm. which is you know. Darkness, light, masculine, feminine, uh, yeah. balances and opposites. So that's all throughout. And like different fighting styles are referenced. So Yeah, you see it reflected in the color palette of the film. Um, and they're often fighting on these gigantic yin-yang symbols that have been painted on the ground. Um, and the, the umbrella, this feminine weapon introduced by uh, a wife character, um, is presented in contrast to this like giant phallic spear that the <laughs> the other uh, character uh, is is going to be holding. So there's there's interesting stuff with like a balance and, and contrast and, and competition. And I think ultimately it it comes down in an interesting place where it it's like breaking down some of those binaries and saying like no one thing does not necessarily. Uh, have to exist in opposition to the other, uh, specifically with uh, like the power dynamics of this movie, people who are um, uh, commanders versus commanded or, or uh, masters and slaves and things like that. Uh, the movie pushes back against those ideas like with, with its aesthetics. Um, it, it's an interesting, interesting film. It probably is not playing near most people, or if it is, it's probably already gone. Uh, but I assume this will be on VOD or, or Blu-ray soon. Um, and it's really, really great. So you should check it out if you like a good action movie or a wuxia movie. And, and if you don't like a good action movie or a wuxia movie, Lydia has a pick for you. I don't know if that's fair. I just, I mean, it seemed like a fun transition. That's not, I mean, these... I think if you don't like an action movie, you definitely want to avoid You're these, right. right? I mean, these are touted as... Some of the greatest action movies. I recently watched both of the Raid films by Gareth Evans. I got interested because the Raid, one of the Raid main characters, oh, I'm gonna mess this up. Yuyan Ryun uh, appeared in John Wick three as one of the people who was like super excited to fight John Wick. He's like one of the antagonists in both of the Raid films. Uh, I. <laughs> Sorry guys, I didn't think it was that exciting. My main problem, especially with the first raid, the premise is super simple, which is part of why people really like the raid. You gotta go in a building, the drug lord lives at the top, there are a bunch of criminals, do do martial arts till you get to the top. Also guns. Um but my problem was, I, this is such a petty complaint. It was too dark to see anything. <laughs> Terrible lighting. I, so it doesn't really matter like how much you do in the master. It doesn't matter how good the choreography is or the gun fu or gun cut or whatever you want to call it. Like I can't. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> it's dark. I can't see. I can't see. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm so sorry. Um, but, <laughs> and then The Raid 2, I mean, I thought it was the much more enjoyable film, but it's about an hour longer. You have a bunch of, like, there's three different gangs, and they're fighting for territory in, I guess, Indonesia? And you get into the problem of all this, like, plotty stuff <laughs> happening, like, uh, dissatisfied sons, and, like, you gotta go into hiding and obscure your identity, like, too, too much. <laughs> but I could see the action in this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I guess you could consider the raid duology. It might be a trilogy. Uh, but the Raid 1 and Raid 2 are the ones I've heard of. Like precursors for what we're talking about when we have just like just competent action cinema, you they frame everything in the master and it's obvious that they're not like cutting mm-hmm. on every punch. They're putting two like actual martial artists, actors against each other so they're actually good at the fighting that they're doing there's a lot of like fake blood and stuff though (laughs) it's and by fake i mean digital blood so mm, may or may not enhance your enjoyment of these like brutal beat downs that was a lot less enthusiastic than i thought it would come out (laughs) (laughs) There's, there's like so many, um, like film bro men at just, well, men's just, uh, bro. Just, is a strong <laughs> word, but, uh, who are just angry at you at this moment. And I've, yeah, Lydia opened with sorry guys, but she's not talking to us. We haven't seen these movies. She's talking to <laughs> she knew the she other guys. To. <laughs> I, you know who I'm talking to. I will say I like, uh, you, oh God, I'm so sorry. Yu Yin Ryun, he's a short dude. <laughs> like, it's really funny. I mean, he's... Is he one of the raid guys who shows up in John Wick 3? Yes, I said that. Uh, he fights him with, oh, like, okay, a brother character who might also have been a raid guy. It was, like, one of the last fights John Wick did before the one with the bald guy. Uh, he's got long mm-hmm. hair, and he's about a foot yeah. shorter than Keanu Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean he's a really great presence um, I think Gareth Ev put him in the Star Wars film too because they work together um, yeah the I mean, worth checking two of out. them appeared oh. in the Force Awakens as in like a little brief it seems like at least stateside yeah, they've thought. never like given been given any uh, like character work to do other than oh it's the guys guys in the raid it's yeah <laughs> I will say he gets like a weird ass redemption arc in Raid 2 and I was just like why? You're, you're just a psychotic bad guy in the Raid. Like the Raid is so simple guys. It's just gotta go to the top. Uh, and then Raid 2 is like oh he's got this complicated backstory and like he's sad about his wife and his kid. And I was like I don't need this. Little did you know it's not that simple. I actually don't need this. And you're this. like just go to the top again. God damn it. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> Go ahead, Andrew. Oh, I was just gonna ask, like, 
I don't know. They, they didn't even work on the level of just simple, like, I'm impressed with this choreography. Or was that too obscured to even enjoy? I mean, that was mostly my problem with the raid. It, I wasn't able to see a whole lot. And then when they fixed, they fixed. The, <laughs> the, the raid, too, was much easier to see, but it was bogged down all of a sudden with all of this just mess about gangs and territory and backstory. Mm -hmm. And so if we could just take the lighting from the raid (laughs) to put it in the raid. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's a happy medium. Are they doing another one? Is there going to be a raid three? I think there's already a raid three or I saw something about it. When I was trying to... I don't know if there is. Mm-hmm. Okay, Google says there is a Raid 3. Gareth Evans is signed up to... Um, well, the first Google thing says probably not happening. Well, <laughs> okay. Never mind. I see an article that says Gareth Evans revealed what the Raid 3 would have been. So maybe there's a third one? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's just in a giant light factory. I mean, just watch the John Wicks. <laughs> like... <laughs> you can see absolutely everything. Just what? <laughs> We've come full circle. Oh, I, I'm so glad that you just offended so many people all in just one fail swoop. <laughs> That's why you keep inviting me back. <laughs> I mean, it is, it's so different from the reputations that these movies have. You know, I, I mostly hear them praised for their clarity. Um, and I was, I was with Jordan, who's a fan of these movies, whenever you logged it on Letterboxd. And he seemed a little like surprised by that take he was like what i can i can see everything fine in the first raid movie i wonder if it might have been like the transfer or your tv or something uh, or if i mean maybe people are just remembering this movie wrong i mean it came out in like 2011 i don't know how good people's yeah, memories that, that's are that's a good point <laughs> that seven something years ago like go back it looks kind of digital the yeah. and also like maybe in comparison to <laughs> maybe the clarity it's you. having something like john wick it might look murky because we've we've gotten we've gone coming further in terms of action clarity recently. I mean, the raids are definitely influences on John Wick. Oh, like, there's no question about that. But I mean, you see, John, things just keep getting better, and I'm not sure what the value is in going back. Unless we're going all the way back to, like, Buster Keaton, in which case. Yeah. <laughs> I don't see what the value is in going back. All right, let's transition to Young Critics young Watch Old critics Movies. Watch old movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, are the Raid movies streaming anywhere or local library? I got them from the local library. Okay. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure okay. the people who care about them deeply have them on blu-ray and can just anger watch them after listening to this if they even listen to it i watched the raid on (laughs) blu-ray i still couldn't see anything (laughs) i'm just saying all right well we're going to transition over into a uh, a transfer problem new segment that we're introducing in the cinematary podcast which is called the superhero rapid fire where we just yell superhero titles and andrew's going (laughs) to give us a reaction to them um i'm just kidding well, this is specifically because uh, I've watched a ton of superhero movies in the last week. I'm gearing up to do a video essay that's not specifically about superhero cinema, but it is related. You, you don't have to, to make it. up an excuse. It's we get it. You're into superhero. Yeah, movies. that's it's me. Fine. That's me. So rather into. than talk about one of these movies, 
a long, a long form, I would rather talk about all of them very briefly because I don't have that much to say about any of them. Um, do one of y'all have my right. diary pulled up right now? I do, right, and Lydia. I'm most just, interested. So, so just throw no, a title Lydia, at me. I know which one you want. You just got to name them off. <laughs> it's rapid fire. Oh, I, okay. I will just go in order. Punisher 2004. Okay. Okay. Punisher 2004, my rapid fire take, I've already kind of put in letterbox review form. Definitely a movie for mass shooters. Uh, it is just taking the Death Wish narrative and putting a like superhero gloss on it. Uh, but there is some some pleasure to be had in this movie to watching John Travolta, who takes like half of the screen time re- doing a dress rehearsal for his gaudy performance. So if you want to see that, you can you can watch the Punisher uh, 2004. I'm more excited about this. I mean, the Punisher's like a piece of shit character. That's my hot take. But uh, yeah, what did you think of Punisher Warzone? A big improvement on the Punisher. I gave it Lexi twice Alexander. the number of stars. Yeah, uh, it's very clear. Very clear that Lexi Alexander is like an actual MMA fighter, and she is interested in clarity of action, and, and she she does a lot of good things with uh, neon lighting in this movie to to make this the spaces. Uh, both very easy to see and also kind of engaging visually. Um, I th- I think that the movie ultimately falls um, on the wrong side of the Punisher coin. Like it, it's kind of interrogating his character uh, throughout most of the film, but then like it ends on this really like thuddingly bad note that's like, yes, we believe that vigilante violence against muggers is great. Uh, so like it left a bad taste in my mouth at the very end, but it's mostly well done. She, the Punisher in that one blows up some parkour runners. It's the funniest fucking thing I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> they deserve it. Uh, There's see. a guy who gets blown up with a rocket in the middle of parkour. Let's see. Uh, Batman Returns. Uh, a movie I was uh, I was asked to watch because I really hate the... Or not hate, but like can't find anything to enjoy about Tim Burton's 18, 1989 Batman. Uh, I was told this was an improvement on that, and it mostly is an improvement on that. Um, the the sets look a lot better, and the the villains are a lot more interesting. I really like Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman character. Uh, I, that those are the scenes that work the best, I think. Mostly, this movie is dragged down for me because of just Tim Burton's like really obnoxious aesthetic and his his. Uh, his insistence on making so many scenes like extremely gross. Like I just hate watching Danny DeVito with like a bunch of prosthetics on like eating a raw fish. And like most of the movie is stuff like that. And it's just, it grosses me out and I don't enjoy watching it. (laughs) Sorry. Doesn't the Tim Burton Batmans have a really good Elfman score? Is that a thing? Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good score and pretty good cinematography as well. Um, I just find, find the movie as a whole pretty distasteful to watch so that it's it's a it's a taste thing your mileage may vary batman and robin <laughs> uh yeah uh, so the i i think this movie is un, unfairly hated i'm not going to go to bat and say that it's a masterpiece or anything like that i only gave it two and a half stars but it is it heart, genuinely <laughs> i gave it a heart this is a classic like two and a half stars and a heart movie yeah because it is not great uh, and definitely too long. If it lost like 30 minutes, it might be a great movie. Uh, but if you just want to see like extremely campy performances and and like uh, 
just a take on the Batman character that doesn't take itself so damn seriously. And lots of puns. Like, almost Ugh. every line Ugh. is a pun. Kind of like movie movie we no. watched last year. Um, this movie has that in spades. And I got a kick out of it, even though it is not great. All right. And then coming up, we got Blade and Blade 2. I combined them. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so Blade is another movie I gave two and a half stars, not because it's bad, but because like I about halfway like it. Um, there are things, there are scenes that I think totally work and scenes that I think are completely boring. Um, mostly the opening scene, which is at a vampire rave that involves uh, blood spurting from the little uh, shower uh, machines on the ceiling. Uh, that is awesome. Uh, there's also an awesome uh, final showdown at the end of this movie, and and these are done in the the wuxia gravity defying action formula, and I love seeing that uh, in an American superhero film. Uh, but unfortunately, there is a lot of people just like talking to each other about vampire lore in between the action scenes. That uh, actually sounds like something I'd like. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you would. I found all of these characters to be like big nothings of characters, um, and this this take on the vampire genre to like not be that interesting. It mostly just like takes away the fact that they don't like crosses and gives them guns and I, I was bored mostly <laughs> sorry so is it better as like a vampire film or a superhero film it's it's kind of not a vampire film or a superhero film it's like a martial arts film with with gunplay um and when it leans into that i think it really works and when it's not i just I think it's really boring sorry and then blade 2 is my last one which is directed by Guillermo del Toro. I had high hopes because this is like the, the one people like um, and has a reputation as being like a cult classic movie. Like. I thought it was, it was not as good as the first one. I'm sorry. I did not love the first one. This one takes... It, it shoots some of the action sequences kind of interestingly. Uh, del Toro does a lot of like moving camera uh, while characters are in the middle of doing some sort of gravity-defying stunt a la The Matrix or something like that. But in general, I found the action scenes here uh, to not be as interesting. And I thought the, the plot and the character work was even more boring. Um... All, all really Del Toro brings to the table, aside from that camera work, is he makes the monsters uh, grosser. He, he makes it into kind of like some body horror stuff with a lot of practical effects. Super vampires. Uh, and I didn't feel like just upping the ante in that regard made me any more interested in the vampire lore. But again, Lydia, maybe if you're, you just want to watch some cool vampire lore, maybe you will like how those movies progress. Um, not, not for me, though. Yeah. I would still check them out. <laughs> out of the six you said, uh, those, I mean, Punisher Wars. I most highly Blades. recommend Batman and Robin. I know that sounds like a very contrarian opinion, but it's it's my sincerely <laughs> held one. <laughs> and the, thus concludes the superhero <laughs> rap. We're still looking for a sponsor. If anybody would be curious in sponsoring superhero rapid fire. So uh, please reach out to Zach at... <laughs> Brought to you by Mountain Dew. <laughs> Mountain Dew. Dew the Dew. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. Yeah. And then we'll be back talking a bunch of silent shorts from around the world. 
pre-1920s after this. Hey, Cemetery listeners, Andrew here. During this break in the show, I'd like to mention that Cemetery does want your money. You can give us your money at patreon.com slash cinematary, where you can chip in a small fee of about $5 a month, you know, the price of a fancy coffee, in exchange for shout-outs in every episode, the opportunity to choose movies we cover on the show, and bonus episodes every month in which we talk about more movies as well as other miscellaneous stuff. In the past, we've just been humbly asking for you to share the show and engage with us, and we would still love for you to do those things. You can tweet us at Cinematary, send us an email, uh, Z-A-C-H at Cinematary.com, leave us a review on iTunes, all that stuff. But Cemetery has grown a ton in the past few years due to the hard work of a bunch of writers, myself included, who haven't been paid for their labor, which is sadly a pretty normal thing. We record things and write things for free, you listen to and read them for free, and the only people getting paid are like Apple and Google, which is depressing. So if you appreciate what we do, if you feel like there's some sort of value being exchanged here and you'd like more of it, help us normalize paying people by going to patreon.com slash cinematary and chipping in $5 a month. We would truly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show. Part two of episode 251 of Cemetery. In this part, we'll be kicking off our young critics watch old movies version five with a selection of short films from around the world pre 1920. We're going to start with uh, one that I feel like we have to watch and talk about because it's our logo, <laughs> and that's 1902's A Trip to the Moon by George Melies. Um, for m- most people, I've probably seen this, it gets shown in just probably every film class ever uh it it was well the variety of different soundtracks yes uh it was uh heavily featured in the martin scorsese film hugo which looked at george melius's life loosely um but for those who have not seen it it's uh it's the if about a 14 minute short and it follows this group of explorers who get shot from a giant cannon and get hit the moon and then they Go and explore, um, capture some moon men, come back to Earth, <laughs> and are hailed as heroes. Um, they get medals with moons on them. <laughs> get, I don't even view them as medals. I just view them as like big stickers. Like they got a sticker. It's the moon. <laughs> They're like, they look like Flava Flav medallions yeah. that are dangling. It's pretty great. Necks. Like it's, it's worthy if, if you went to the moon and came back. Like that's what you should get. That's that NASA's really losing losing some steam <laughs> yes. on that. Um, but ha- where's the space force? That's true. That's what they, that's what they'll get. They'll get stickers that have moon on it. Um, have you guys had you guys seen this before? Um, and what are your thoughts on on trip to the moon? Well, we all nodded our heads like this is an audio medium. Uh, <laughs> this is this is an audio medium, guys. We need to. Uh... I, I've seen it several times before, Miranda. Yeah, I assume you guys have too. Yeah, like several times uh, I've seen it like with tinting or 
I don't know if those are done after the fact. I've seen it with like modern, like avant garde soundtracks. So, like, there's a several bands have done soundtracks to it. Like, Air yeah, Smashing Pumpkins, one. I'm pretty yeah. sure, has several times. It's foundational. Yeah, I don't know. Now, I've never seen it in a classroom setting. Uh, so, I'm wondering if either of y'all have and, and what, how that's usually taught. I have. I don't know. If I did watch this in school, I mean, I know I when I got interested in film, I watched it, you know, on YouTube. Um, and I think that was just in black and white. I don't know if I've ever seen it, like, hand-colored or anything. But I don't, I can't think of the time I watched it in class. Yeah, I watched it in the film, you know, Introduction to Film Studies class. Uh, and they taught it as just a, as a little bit, as kind of similar to what we're doing now as a collection of early foundational shorts that right. uh, are usually good for, for intro film people to see. Maybe I did. Like, just the contrast between, like, the Lumiere brothers. Right. This, and, like, it's got a narrative. We're yeah. doing interesting things with the camera. And the, But there's these are two different tracks. You can go realism or you can go, like, a fantasy. So maybe that's where we are just, yeah. it didn't make that. Well, just just uh, doing some research on Melies, at least in terms of what he was trying to uh, accomplish with this one, he um, he he was very influenced by Jules Verne novels, um, and and kind of wanted to incorporate that element into into the screen and it does you know even for being so i think that it can probably get lost just as being this foundational piece but it does have some really yeah um fun playful moments you know like when they find the moon men and are fighting the moon men and they just like hit them and then they poof away um my favorite part i think just watching it this most recent time was that they you know get shot to the moon they're on the moon and the first thing they do instead yeah. of like going oh my gosh i'm on the moon i'm gonna explore is they go to sleep they take a nap <laughs> 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 <Mood>. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just like I'm. I'm like, is that really like the first? Like, I'm gonna lead off my moon journey with a nice nap. Um, <laughs> but a I lot of the my... beginning, a lot of the beginning stuff, just in terms of like them setting up the giant cannon. You have like the uh, the the women in the bathing suit type <laughs> attire and hats that are, like that's that are how pushing the, military the, dresses. the bullet into into the uh, into the cannon. Like it's it is. It's it's somewhat absurd. It's somewhat it kind of has that sci-fi element to it, but it uh I don't know. It I, I find it to be very fun and playful and just kind of strange all at once. I think my favorite thing uh so in this one you have like very impressive like in-camera tricks. You have mm-hmm. really impressive sets and costumes and everything. But like the acting, I it's like if you've ever watched like little kids play soccer, <laughs> they just like all bunch up and like <laughs> wave their <laughs> Film acting is not as sophisticated as the like trick photography. It's true, but they're having such a great time. <laughs> I'm like, I'm having a good time with you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with with very little to work with in terms of like camera movement or color or sound or anything like that, y- you have to express everything through just actor movement. This is these are basically like little stage shows with cutting, right? So the, there's some really over the top expressive acting. I think we could maybe contrast it to uh, the student of Prague. We'll look at later. 
Um, I also love the set design in Milius stuff, like especially this. But he has he has set design, great set design in almost all of his uh, movies. And I like Zach said, I think that the special effects are really interesting and fun. Um, he'll just use really like simple primitive stuff, like you know a, a person's about to disappear, so he just like cuts and they're gone, and he puts a puff of smoke in their place. Um, and it, it's like he's using film is sort of like a, a sleight of hand like a magic show or something uh that that i, I find it really amusing to, to your point about the the set design the it, it is really interesting in terms of how he layers it because like you you think of like the first mm-hmm. scene where it has all the like scholar men in the room and it's like a very high it looks like a very like very tall room and they're they're all kind of yeah. like bunched up in like a like it looks like they're all standing on top of each other and then you also have like the sequence where the the uh the the cannon is being fired off and just the the like the scope of the like it's uh, background painting yeah Yeah. this yeah he's able to create depth in these images even though you're definitely just looking at like cardboard cutouts of things that are meant to look like they are working on a z-axis but he he does that really well did anybody pick up kind of on the because i've read interpretations of this being a kind of a a satire on colonialism I hadn't thought about it. It definitely could be. I think I think that reading could work. Um, is is that anything that y'all have heard in in, in a classroom? Not. I don't think the French in nineteen o two or what twelve two were thinking about that. Nineteen o two. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I also like never try to interpret a whole lot of deeper meaning in the Milius films I watch. Like I either. Am amused and entertained by them, or I'm not. Um, none of them have ever struck me as like some sort of a, a grand artistic statement. Um, well, again, tr- we'll, we'll include a a YouTube playlist with all of these. So, uh, Trip to the Moon, George Melius. Um, if you, if you're a fan of Cinematary, you should see it because again, it is our logo. <laughs> Um, And that one, as Lydia mentioned, it hails from France. This one, our next one is called the question mark motorist. I don't know how else you're supposed to say it. (laughs) The motorist? This one comes from 1906. Uh, It's directed by Walter R. Booth. Um, And according to this letterboxed uh, description, it says this was a British effort to top (laughs) Melius at the sci-fi fantasy comedy trick film. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I hadn't seen this one before. Uh, It's only three minutes long. There's not too much in it. And it's pretty much this just a two these two people in a car just causing mayhem and dry, driving all over the place. What did you all make of this one? <laughs> driving all over. <laughs> no shame. Uh, I don't know if it tops trip to the moon, like mm, either in, ter- like in terms of ambition or sets. Set. Or, uh, but it's delightful. <laughs> like, it made me laugh. Yeah. It's it, it it does yeah I kind of going back to the point where we were talking about the uh, the set design the set design in this one feels a li- like it's a little bit on a lower level than Melia's stuff there it doesn't have that depth um, it feels much more surface level um, and you don't really feel like you're even though both of them are very you know fake. Uh, you know, fake spaces. You can kind of inhabit the weirdness of Melias's space, and this one, you just feel like almost you're watching 
<laughs> like a, like some kind of Nickelodeon uh, reel yeah. or something like that. And I think a lot of that has to do with how short it is. The the Milius movie is 14 minutes and this is only three minutes. So it, I mean, it's topping Milius in terms of the, the speed and the pace. Like if you're just trying to make like a zippier experience, it does that. But it doesn't necessarily have the time to luxuriate in the sets that Milius has created. And so they don't really make those sets. You're just driving down a normal old country road and then we're in this sky set that we've made that is is fairly bare bones. Uh, but I do really like the the special effects they create with the car like riding around the rings of Saturn and stuff like that. I think that is that is very cool and imaginative. I mean this one's going for more like straight slapstick too. Yeah. Like yeah. it's mostly yeah. jokes and funny things happening. One kind of interesting note is that they do use miniatures in order to create the sets. So it is kind of, the the effects of it are are kind of neat. And I I also like the one part where the car falls off the rings of Saturn and then hits like the building and then like becomes like ghost car, (laughs) you know, around the town. I guess (laughs) for a second. Yeah. I guess they had to do it as like a transparency to, to make the special effect work. I don't think it is literally supposed to be a ghost car in that moment, but it comes across that way just because of how primitive the, I think they ran the film twice. Yeah. Yeah. I like filmed it and then, Yeah. rewound it, put it back in the camera, and then filmed another thing. So right. double exposure. It's the only way I could think to do that. The Motorist 1906 by Walter <laughs> Booth. <laughs> Does anyone have any theories about this title? Is it just that this is a very strange motorist who's going to space? Yeah, I think it's Maybe just... Maybe it's a horse and buggy and not a motorist? Question mark? <laughs> They confuse some. I mean, I guess it's probably worth thinking about the fact that this would have come out when cars were fairly new, and so the idea that some something this high tech could maybe go to the moon one day is uh, maybe a something in the imaginations of uh, the French at the time or the British at the time. (laughs) Over a hundred years later, I'm sorry. (laughs) Wait, I don't know if we no flying cars yet. There's no flying cars yet. I really like how the car just we takes went a... went to the moon and decided it was boring. <laughs> <laughs> I like how the car takes a 90-degree turn up the building, though. It's, it doesn't crash into the building. It just automatically is on the side of the building. That's, that's a very agile uh, machine. <laughs> go, go, gadget. Go, go, gadget? Motor? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, go, some... go, gadget? Go, go. <laughs> yeah, you got to throw some question marks in there. Now, these next two are my favorite of the shorts, so we got to get to... Yeah. So the next one is The Thieving Hand. It came out in 1908, and it's directed by J. Stewart Blackton. Um, This one, kind of adding to Lydia's point of the slapstick, this one is definitely uh, leaning leaning into a very vaudeville (laughs) slapstick-y premise. Uh, Pretty much, there's this uh, street peddler who has one arm. Um, He returns this man's ring because the the man drops it, and so the, the man is very grateful. And to show his appreciation, and this is my favorite part, he takes the peddler to the limb store, which... That does not seem like a viable business. <laughs> just to, it's a it's just a secondhand shop. Yeah, uh, it's hilarious, hilarious. <laughs> oh my god! Um, so they and he gets him a new arm, and then he, of course, to his uh, 
to his awe, he, he learns that the arm has a mind of its own and is constantly trying to steal stuff from people. <laughs> it's a great performance this actor turns in. Having to pretend to like be nice and hand out pamphlets to people while his other hand is giving a completely different performance and just like uh, very manically taking stuff out of people's pockets. It's hilarious just to I watch I also him just do really that. like that this... The world of this movie implies that you, you can just replace a body part, like. The, the well, and not only that, you can go to the pawn shop. Um, yes, and, you know. It's a. Buy it on layaway. You know, it's interesting to consider next to these other two movies that are very much uh-huh. like sci-fi fantasy movies. This is almost like a. A, a transhumanist thing of like, well, what happens when you start replacing our body parts with technology? They're going to have a mind of their own. Like, this isn't that far removed from like a, a Ghost in the Shell or Deus Ex or something, right? It's just done in a much more fleshy Well, it's context. not that much different than uh, Frankenstein um, or maybe not Frankenstein, yeah. but like uh, Young Frankenstein, yeah. whatever. It's like they put the brain of a thief or something mm-hmm. in Frankenstein that makes him bad so it's like your body yeah. parts can take on whatever right. moral wrong thing and, uh, <laughs> I don't know. is it okay is it okay if we spoil the ending in this movie because it has such a great ending which it kind of plays into that idea um, it's also like six minutes long <laughs> know, like, it's over 100 so, years old so we, yeah <laughs> we st- uh, you're gonna you're gonna laugh whether you know the ending or not. Eventually, because dude is a thief because of his thieving hand, they throw him in prison, and the hand jumps off of him and jumps onto an inmate who has no arm. And so the twist is this belongs to a thief who is now in jail, and hurrah, he got his arm back. So it's like the the li- the limbs of somebody they possess the characteristics of that original person no matter <laughs> whether they've been uh, taken well, off of them this... or not uh it's 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 very well charming it's charming it. here but like so lydia was telling me the premise of this and i was like oh my gosh that's just like a movie i saw at the tcm film festival um, and it was like a, their Sunday morning screening at the oh. Egyptian. It's called Mad Love. Stars Peter Lorre. Yeah. And like the premise is, so Peter Lorre has this Ooh. like really um, creepy crush on this. Uh, she's like an actress and she's married to this pianist and he, a concert pianist, and he gets in a car or a train accident and it's kind of convoluted. But the point is Peter Lorre finds these hands of this guy who was just executed, but he used to be a knife thrower and would kill people. (laughs) And in this train accident the pianist was in, his hands are crushed, so they're no good. So he does this surgery where he takes the... Hands. The other hands. From the knife thrower. Onto the pianist and hoping, like, now he can play the piano and continue his career, but these hands have a mind of their own (laughs) and wants to throw knives. It's a completely nutty movie. Um, and I highly recommend it. It's I, I have to see that. And Peter Laurie, too. That sounds perfect for him. So for like a feature-length treatment of this that's not funny? It's not. It's not. <laughs> it's, this is very enjoyable. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's not that funny. <laughs> also, I recommend the trailer for that movie, too. It's just Peter Laurie sitting in a chair with a dog talking to like a fangirl saying, yes, this is my new movie. <laughs> so yes, I highly recommend it. It's great. There's also... There's also against in that similar vein. There's the Robert Vine film from the German expressionist era called The Hands of Orlock with uh, Conrad Veidt, oh where he is this uh, 
pianist who loses both of his hands in an accident and then he gets this transplant with new hands and he learns that they belong to a murderer and so then he has these murderous tendencies because of his hands how do you spell <laughs> so like like o-r-l-a-c both of these are now on my watch list. <laughs> yeah. yeah plus conrad Vite guys um Cool. Well, the thieving hand—it's uh, we'll put it on the list, but yeah, it's a—it's very much a fun one. Our next one, though, is probably the greatest movie that's ever been produced in the history of cinema. And <laughs> oh my! Two hundred fifty-one episodes. We, we finally found it. found it. The greatest movie uh, ever made it is the, the Cameraman's Revenge from nineteen twelve. It's directed by uh, Wadislaw Star uh, Star Starwitch, um, Russian director. Yeah, it's a Russian. Uh, Stop motion Russian animated film. film. Uh, Star Witch is, is one of the earliest um, animators, and um, I'll talk a little bit about him later. I did some research on him for my video essay, but this one, it stars... <laughs> I'm going to describe it without getting too much into the weeds on what it's about. <laughs> so I'll read the synopsis, and it's, A jilted husband takes his revenge by filming his wife and her lover and showing the result at the local cinema. Well, that sounds like, okay, that sounds like a normal plot. Wait, doesn't he film the husband and his lover? That's not quite right either. I think we should just do a beat-by-beat plot summary of the cameraman's revenge. It's the guy that he offends. That's fine. All right, so the cameraman's revenge. (laughs) Yeah, we should just go over the whole... They're all bugs. <laughs> so Mr. Well, you got Mr. and Mrs. Beetle. Yeah. So Mr. Beetle and his little and his little beetle suitcase go to work, which honestly already had me dying. Beetle suitcase. I love that. He had his little beetle suitcase and he goes to work. Well, he decides to what? Take a sidetrack from work and he's like, I need some booty. I think he's lying about yeah, work. He tells Mrs. Yeah. Beetle that he's going to work, but it really, says that his his he, domestic life a, is just too he's going, too city. he's going to get some booty. So he has to spice it he up. He goes to this bit. nightclub. <laughs> Called the gay dragonfly. The gay dragonfly. <laughs> And he's he's really enjoying the the gay dragonfly so much so that he I don't know if it's the titled gay dragonfly but he decides me and the dragonfly are gonna hit up a hotel. Um, how I, the dragonfly is like an erotic dancer, by the way. Yes, I think it's a if lady dragonfly. Unclear. Yeah, and and like it looks like a dragonfly. These are not anthropomorphic. Yes, it's an erotic animals. dancing dragonfly. They just look like no, actual they're bugs. dead bugs. Dead they're bugs. real bugs. He was literally taking bug corpses and animating them. <laughs> well, that's the thing about Wadislaw Starwitch uh, is that he would use actual like. So he also he's probably most well known for his stop-motion animated film The Tale of the Fox and like he would use actual like uh, actual figures and like fox hair and animal hair and stuff like he was very anatomically conscious of his characters Um, and he proves that here because we watch all of the insects Um, but how does what how does how does he piss off the grasshopper that turns out to be the cameraman (laughs) the inner title is so funny well the grasshopper Uh, well the grasshopper also wants to get with the dragonfly and so he's just he's just jealous right so the grasshopper follows Mr. Beetle and the gay dragonfly uh, to their hotel room and then films them yeah. which honestly the great cinematography oh, by the grasshopper like real <laughs> real key shot the inner title cracks me up because it's like I, I also did Mr. really Beetle enjoyed the... that his rival was a camp and I was like why would he know that <laughs> <laughs> why 
Why, why would he have that looks like a cameraman over there. <laughs> the way they shoot the beetle and the dragonfly having sex is they're just like standing in front of each other and like with distance between them, just kind of gyrating <laughs> and just <laughs> making this waving motion at one another. I mean, if we're talking like interspecies, like that's freaky. That's some freaky stuff that Mr. Beetle's into. That shouldn't work. <laughs> hey, Mr. Beetle, he can he love who he loves. Let him let him follow his passions. Meanwhile, um, all of this is happening. Miss, yeah, Mrs. Beetle's like, you know what? I could use some booty as well. So she Mrs. doesn't know. Beetle literally. Literally places a booty call. I love that she places a booty call with another with the servant beetle who paints and is like, and and it's like Titanic, and she's like, paint me like one of those French girls, and they get it on after he paints her. But then, lo and behold, we should we should mention before we move on that the booty call is like a handwritten letter that is you know, delivered via servant. That's just like, he's gone. Come see me. That's the booty call. <laughs> yeah. That's the, that's, that's, that's the booty call. So Mr. Beetle finishes up with the gay dragonfly. And again, very, d- does not realize that there's a grasshopper walking around with a 1900s era camera <laughs> videotaping him. Also, wait, uh, wait, no, hold on. I'll, I'll save this point for later. But there's like a, a world building part of this in the terms of like how the technology of this world works that I want to circle back to. But go ahead. So he comes home, finds his wife having the affair with the other servant beetle, and p- proceeds to become like a modern day NFL player and starts beating the oh shit out of God, her. Oh my Which I. Which, well, which he I takes really the painting over her head. <laughs> yeah, like I mean, that's like I lost and so much respect for Mr. Beetle because he becomes, <laughs> you know, uh, he just starts assaulting his wife. He was just doing wife. the but same does he, thing. Does the, and, the servant and also, like crawl into the fire because like does right. he die? What happens yes. to Mrs. Beetle's no, brain? Like, no, <laughs> the fire is lit. That's <laughs> what I thought. Going strong. He like the first the first. Uh, um, the first indication that Mr. Beetle's coming home, the the male lover climbs into the fireplace. I thought he was just committing suicide, but no. Like a couple shots later, you see him, you see him climb out of the chimney. So somehow he, and you see, it takes a long time for Mrs. Beetle to make the fire, and like it keeps getting bigger and bigger and brighter and brighter. So like you know, there's this roaring fire in the fireplace. Yet this beetle somehow climbs through it. And straight up the chimney and escapes. But not 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 quickly enough to, to not get roughed up by Mr. Beetle yeah. on the way out. And so I guess in, in the interim, Mr. and Mrs. Beetle work it out. They 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 come they, they work it out. No no yeah. no. The intertitle is Mr. Her. Beetle forgives Mrs. Beetle. <laughs> like, okay. You're right. Assumingly because he knows he was doing the same thing. And here's where I want to bring up my point about technology. After he forgives her, they go to the movies and you see them driving to the movies and there's this wide shot of their car driving to the movies. And that's when you see that this is not like this weird bug world that has been invented. These are bugs that exist in our world. Like you see them drive by like a bush with some flowers in it and it is and the car is tiny compared to the bush with flowers in it. So... There's just all this miniature technology that somehow has been developed independently by the Smoke Society, but exactly mirrors our own. 
It's amazing. <laughs> Honestly, I can't get over it. It's it's the true cinematic universe that we need. Uh, <laughs> So to to conclude the the to conclude the revenge, uh, the cameraman's they also go to the, the movies. They're watching the movie. Yeah, the cameraman now, is the projectionist, and yeah, and then he shows the uh, the Mr. Beetle gay dragonfly sex tape that we were <laughs> all clamoring about for. Is the lead up to that? Surprise! You're in a porn. <laughs> all the shots are the shots that we've already seen. Like this is not what the cameraman filmed. Yeah. Like if it would be from behind and like following, <laughs> but it's like no, if this is just the movie that you've already watched a little bit. <laughs> Which is great. I was like, that's the outside of the hotel. And they just sit there and watch it for a good long while <laughs> they before get into anybody it makes any like, sort yeah, of reaction. Yeah, it's my kink. <laughs> and then there's a nitrate then, uh, fire. Oh my god. It, there's a nitrate fire. Mr. Beetle, uh, Mrs. Beetle loses her shit on Mr. Beetle. Mr. Beetle runs up, tries to beat up the grasshopper, and then the movie ends when they're in jail. So. I think they make up. I think this was like their kink. Like they were like, oh, we they're were just bored. Mixing things up, you know. This is true. They're kind of like, oh, that was fun. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's so it's it's amazing. It's thirteen back minutes. To Please, like, immediately go watch it after this, this is, is over. Movie ever made. Honestly, just cut the podcast off right now and go watch it. I'm fine with you doing that. It's so much. Yes, it's it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> uh, it's a lot better than the Tale of the Fox. Yes. By the same director. Yeah. Could could not get. Yeah. Into that. Tell the fox is like super boring. Yeah, a big great. lack of beetle sex, honestly. <laughs> yeah, this there, there's a you know <laughs> they really need to get into the sexual uh, preferences of the <laughs> of the animals and insects to uh to really. I mean, we learned the kinks of this beetle family, so we're into we it. We don't have to do that. Yeah. Game <laughs> Ranch Revenge, 1912. Um, our, our next two are technically features, but, you know, we just don't play by the rules. Uh, the, first one, <laughs> uh, the first one is a Swedish... What's the cutoff for a short, by the way? What, what do you think is enough minutes... To, to be a short <laughs> it's like you know what there's there's lug nuts going to a three hour long avengers movie this is an hour this is like a short film compared to most of the stuff people are going to theaters for so i'm thinking I, if it's over 40 minutes think, it's a aren't feature there like actual definitional things yeah isn't it, it have to do with like the real how many reels like a two like reeler that'd be like real it's a feature 20 something like, minutes i think of like silent 12 and 12 like right yeah so, so are we just gonna cut it off or are we just gonna stop talking now and that's the end of episode 251 <laughs> of cinematary check out our <laughs> website <laughs> cinematary.com um so the so the first one is is from 1913 it's a swedish film by uh, victor seastrom who uh we we eventually will probably get to on young critics with the phantom carriage but people just never seems to win um it's a it gets nominated. I, I nominate it every year. I've nominated it three times. We got this one. It's uh, Ingberg Holm. Uh, it, as the poster says, a modern tragedy in four acts. So Ingberg Holmes has a shitty life because her husband Bad. becomes sick and dies, dies and at then work. they lose their grocery. Yeah, and then they they lose their grocery store because for some reason the bank just is coming for them. Then she is becomes bankrupt. She has to move to a workhouse, and because she's at a workhouse, all of her children go to foster homes. And then she's trying that she spends the rest of the movie trying to uh, see them again, and one of them forgets her, and it's just it's just sad. 
It's just a sad, 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 very like no music behind it. <laughs> Silent movie. Um, is that a is that a, a choice or is that just a result? It's of how just the result of what's on YouTube. I mean, I thought it could be because like Joan of yeah. Arc is completely silent mm. on purpose. Uh, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, that's rough. Uh, I mean, it works for Joan of Arc. I watched this one silent because I didn't have the forethought to like find some sad ass music to put on. That was my first thing. I was like, I can't. <laughs> put I, on I, I had to put mafia. on Apple Music Melancholy Strings. So I was like, <laughs> we're good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Nathan says to put on Three Six Mafia, so we're all failing. Um, what did you all think of of Ingeborg Holm? I mean, actually, I kind of liked it. Yeah. Um. Once. Didn't once watch. Once you got it. used to everything being done in the master. Uh, okay, so this is an experiment of like early filmmaking, and it's kind of like a film stage. The camera doesn't move. There's no cuts. There's like all of the scenes, t- like take place just in one go but i thought all of the actors were really good i thought um they did i mean it wasn't like wave your hands around overacting like melies which was 10 years earlier uh, so like it was much more sophisticated but that could just be yeah uh hilda borgstrom who plays the main character um is really really good uh she had like the scenes where she's being like stripped away from her kids are incredibly painful. Um, she has like the, it, it's it's almost like they're elastic because she's just like they'll t- like take the kid away from her and she'll like swing back to to you know, and hug the kid and they pull him away again. Like it, there's just like this kind of uh, elastic motion to to her uh, her grief. I think they do a lot with, like, staging. I saw a very good, like, one of the popular reviews on Letterboxd is, like, okay, because they don't move the camera, it's, like, who's in the front of the Mm -hmm. frame, who's obscured behind parts of the set, who's obscured, like, behind a doorway or something. Uh, So they manage to do a lot emotionally just, like, with that, which might, I don't know if that's good cinema. (laughs) It's good stage play directions. Uh, Yeah. Miranda, what'd you make of this one? I mean, I agree with Lydia. Um, I noticed the compositions and the depth of focus. Um, and like Lydia said, who is, you know, who's obscured by what? Um, um, I really liked the children and I thought the youngest. I, like, I really liked the scene uh, at the beginning with the family all having, um, you know, I think it was dinner. Just watching, you know, each family member, what they're doing with the little child mm-hmm. goes to the door to get the letter and, you know, the mom and the dad interacting uh-huh. um i thought it was sweet at least in the beginning <laughs> i got sad yeah this one this one i, I think that um like a social problem it, film. It, it, is this kind of ex- what's it that seemed like a early social problem film too like look how terrible we treat poor people <laughs> yeah Isn't society kinda, messed up it reminded me a little bit of the ones that we talked about last year by uh lois weber and uh alice gee where they were they had like these uh social messages to them maybe i'm not sure what was going on in sweden where right. like if their economy was depressed in 19 like i don't know what the context is for this uh who hurts you sweden <laughs> Also, I just had... Did her daughter die? Is that what happened? Which daughter? The She only had one. She had two sons oh, and a oh, yeah. daughter. Or a baby. I don't know what gender the baby was. But the oldest kid that she ran away to, like, like desperately try to see... Like, did that kid die? <laughs> oh, I don't realize. I'm... I... 
Because I'm not sure what the resolution of that, like, plot line was. Yeah. Probably. Maybe we just don't know. Maybe. Let's just assume she died. This is a sad movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. It's, I mean, it, it, it might as well, because, yeah, that's just kind of where this movie was headed. You've got to be in the mood for this uh, one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big time. <laughs> so this is this is the one that I didn't have time to watch, because ter- turns out we... Uh, we planned a three-and-a-half-hour shorts program before this episode. Um, do you feel like it, it justifies being so much longer than the other shorts we watched? Yeah. There's a lot going on. I preferred this one to our last one we're going to talk about, but that could be me and coming up at the end of a three-and-a-half-hour short program. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't a great answer to your question. I mean, we can get into Student of Prague if you guys are ready to transition to that. So the last one, the last, the last one we're going to talk about is The Student of Prague. It's a German film from 1913. It's directed by Stellan Rye and Paul Wegener. Uh, it follow, it's a, actually a, the second version of the Student of Prague story. Um, it follows the student who um, becomes obsessed with this countess, and so a sorcerer makes a deal with him in order to give him, you know, a, a fabulous amount of wealth in order to impress the the girl and anything he wants he has to sign his name to he has to sign a contract and when he signs the contract he uh he learns that the sorcerer has taken his likeness and begin he be, uh, begins to be haunted by this doppelganger uh who follows him around and and causes havoc on his life um yeah what andrew what did you make of this one well, the reason I asked the question about the other film, about the, the Swedish film, is because I didn't necessarily feel like this uh, justified its length. Um, and comparing it to the other German Expressionist films that I've seen, like uh, Captain Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu and Metropolis, it, it seems to have so much less going on. Uh, it, it's a much more subdued and gloomy story um, with with, with these actors who are not super expressive, though I think that that's what they were going for. I think it is. Uh, I think that's a function of the YouTube. Yeah. Transfer. Do you think that it's just the the quality of the rift we watched? I, it seemed to me there wasn't a lot of movement, um, whether that's camera movement or actor movement uh, or plot movement. Really, uh, the, the, it it moves very slowly, and uh, at times I had a hard time following the plot of it. Um, not that it was, not because it was moving too fast, because it wasn't, but because it was sort of uh, oblique and un- unclear what was happening. And maybe this is on me rather than on the movie, but uh, the fact that it uses so few uh, inner titles um, felt to me to obscure uh, the movie rather than emphasize its cinematic Qualities. You know, we talked about um, F.W. Murnau with Sunrise uh, a few years back and how he wanted to strip down the silent uh, feature to its basis elements and, and give you so few intertitles so that all the visuals could do the talking. But I just didn't feel like the visuals were saying a whole lot to me uh, in this. And, and maybe I just wasn't uh, looking closely enough or maybe the, the transfer was just so bad that I had a hard time making stuff out. But... Um, I, I was mostly a little bored by this. Um, what, what did y'all think? I mean, what I did notice out of all the six that we watched, this is the only one I think it did have camera movement, like the invisible style. Like if the ca- if the characters were walking, mm-hmm. the camera would move, like pan slightly yeah. to keep them centered in the frame. I'm like, yeah. okay, that's like an early cinematic 
technique, I guess. And yeah. I, I mean, this is a literary adaptation too, and I think mm-hmm. it's got a huge problem. Like they didn't know what, right. like coming up with good stories for cinema. Like, oh, we'll just. Because a lot of the early stuff, yeah. besides trick photography films, was adapting like literary sources, and like not mm-hmm. entirely. Yeah, yes, it's, it's Poe, Poe, right? And so much of Poe is in the voice and the 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 tone and the timbre of the vocabulary that he uses. And and some people have adapted Poe in interesting ways, like turning um, uh, "Fall of the House of Usher" into basically like an avant-garde film. Um, and I just don't feel like there's as much texture here to, to really create that mood and that atmosphere that, that a Poe story really requires. And my other complaint was the quality was so poor. Like, I couldn't tell if it was the doppelganger. Like, so it's technically impressive, right, to have the same actor in the same shot, mm-hmm. like, reacting against himself. Like, that's pretty cool. But, like, I couldn't really tell yes. if they were using a double or if that was him. I mean, I assume it was him. I assume they reversed the film, put it back in yeah. the camera, and, like, shot it twice. But I can't, I'm not seeing it because it's hard to tell whose face I'm looking at. Miranda, what did you think? I agree. I had a hard time just, I mean, I had a hard time just watching this because I agree. I think it was slow and there's, there are things that could have been cut out. Um, But just even the whites being so blown out, I couldn't see facial expressions or like Lydia said, I'm assuming that's his doppelganger, but I I really can't tell. Um, Yeah. So I was really distracted by that. Now, Zach, you're kind of our expressionist expert here, and you've seen this movie before. Maybe you've seen a better rip than what we've seen, but what, what are your thoughts on this? No, there's not there's not great quality uh, of transfer of the, this movie. You probably watched, we're watching the uh, the best that we, they can offer. So uh, the movie, which is directed and stars Paul Wegener, uh, he was trying to very much um, capture this... Uh, what was kind of the early auteur movement uh, of the auteur in film, um, which was very popular because uh, he came, came from a very th- uh, theatrical theater background. Um, and then you also have this story, which is very seeped in, in romantic, uh, kind of in the, in the romantic uh, style. And uh, that, that was another big um, component of, of a lot of German expressionist movie, uh, movies just because it allowed them to play with these somewhat supernatural qualities um, and the student of Prague is is less ambitious in, in the uh, in the sense you know compared to a lot of the other expressionist movies that you look at um, it's probably though the one of the better examples of the the concept of the doppelganger um, that you get um, this mm-hmm. this concept of of seeing double. Um, it's it, and it's one. Is it the first? Yeah, and it's one of the and it's one of it's probably one of the earliest examples of like uh, of a kind of, of of a kind of horror movie that we continue to see. I mean, even as recently as Us mm-hmm. uh, earlier this year, you kind of this this kind this idea of the doppelganger uh, has kind of pervaded through culture and. Wegener is, is, is kind of an interesting figure. He tried uh, uh, really to um, expand the scope of, of film, especially in Germany where they were trying to establish this um, this kind of way of, of, of creating their movies. But I don't think that he's as he's not he's not nearly as, as successful as, as like Caligari or people like Fritz Lang or F.W. Murnau. 
Um, but this one, this one, I. I mean, would you call this like a predecessor to expressionism? No, this I would. Like it's gesturing towards them. It's it's probably the, but... one of the earliest examples of expressionism, which is why it doesn't have necessarily the aesthetic examples. But in terms of the, of what it's trying to accomplish with its plot and even those subtle camera movements that you're talking about are are elements of of German expressionism. The the uh, you know the kind of double feature and the way that it kind of it moves around very slowly um i like the student of Prague. It, it, it's not it's not perfect but there's a it, there's a it, it it does have this kind of um <laughs> it reminds me a lot of of dryer's vampire which we've talked about before it it, it it it's not nearly as uh seeped in the in the moodiness of something like that but i also i i really i do like the the lead performance is paul wegener he has this kind of imposing presence he also played uh the Gollum in a number of of the Gollum films early uh, in his career where he has this very imposing figure and in this one he uh i think that the that the uh the physicality that he displays as the doppelganger in comparison to the physicality that he uh kind of lacks as the student um at is is kind of the acting technique that we're that we're talking about um especially when it comes to uh you know looking at this one Ingberg Holm compared to some of the acting that we talked about in the earlier shorts. Um, I think that that, that, that physical presence um, adds something that is a little bit different than what we would see like in a trip to the moon or the motorist. Like it's not, like it's not as natural as Ingberg Holm, but it's less arms waving above your head than trip to the moon. <laughs> I like that as a shorthand for what a lot of silent acting is arms waving above your head. I'm definitely going to use that. Um, but all of these, all of these, we're gonna have in a in a YouTube playlist, so you can check them out if you if you please. Yeah, all so of- they're all available on YouTube or online, so please do it. Yeah, at least at least check out like the cameraman's revenge and enjoy yourself. Um, but that will that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on uh, Twitter at handle at cinematary, and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary, where we post all of the movies that we talked about in this episode. Um, also, a big thank you. Hey, can I make two quick announcements before Let me- we do Patreon shoutouts? Sure. Okay, so announcement number one. If you are a patron, uh, we've sent you a survey. We've gotten about three responses so far, but we have a lot more patrons uh, that we would love to hear responses for. That would let us know what kinds of content you're looking for when it comes to the bonus episodes. We're trying to tailor to what people want there. Uh, So please go check your email inboxes or your Patreon account and fill out that survey. It should only take like two minutes tops. The other announcement is that Nathan has officially started his uh, 2019 fourth annual Schmite and Schmound poll on Twitter, uh, asking Film Twitter what the greatest movies of all time uh, are, and that will be published on Cinematary in July, but he needs your votes. (laughs) He doesn't necessarily need more votes. He has like 500 already. It's already, it's only been up for about half a day, but please send him your top 10 list. Uh, There are no rules, whatever. What's that? Don't don't send him a DM or at him. Like, use the Google form. <laughs> yeah. In his initial tweet, which I've retweeted and maybe the Centurion account has retweeted, there is a form to fill out. So if you just quote tweet him, he will not count that. 
but any criteria you want to use to de- determine the 10 best films of all time uh, will help influence the results of this poll. They are always very interesting results. So, so please be part uh, of that. Definitely check those out. Yeah, like, like you said, uh, we have last year's list on the Cinematary site if you'd like to check it out and see kind of what people said. Um, it always comes out really interestingly. Um, but as we as he mentioned, if you would like to, we, we're gonna have some uh, cool Patreon exclusive uh, content coming up uh, in the next month or so, including the the first book club entry and some other additions to uh, some of the young critics episodes. But as always, thank you to our patrons: uh, Cam, Chad Newsom, Christopher Metcalf, Maggie, Matthew Lingo, Miranda Barnwell, Ronald Hayes, Tyler Chandler, Whitney Rio Ross, <laughs> and Will Carroll. A couple new faces in this one. Um, Thank you all for supporting the show, um, and yeah. Until next week. Oh, next week. Sorry. Let me let me let me preview. Next week we're going to continue Young Critics with 1920s Within Our Gates. Uh, Oscar Micheaux. I'm really excited that we finally are going to be watching Oscar Micheaux. He's been on. He's been another one that's been on the list for a couple years now and finally made the cut. Um, so we're going to be kicking off with that, and we'll. I'll go ahead and preview the week after that. We'll have uh, 1925's Battleship Potemkin. Um, where it's going to be real. Uh, we're going to have a real full coverage of that. We're going to have a live podcast at Central Cinema uh, where we're going to have a panel discussion after the film talking about it and then we also have a chat with uh, Luca uh, Yuk, um the University of Maryland professor uh, who wrote about we, we talked about uh, Sergei uh, Eisenstein and montage and his theories on montage and political films uh, it's a real interesting chat and so that will be a Patreon exclusive so if you'd like to hear that support us on Patreon and the live um, pod is going to be not on not two weeks from now on june 28th but less than two weeks from now on june 26th that is a wednesday um i think it's only gonna be like five dollars that's what these silent um films at central cinema usually are so please come out if you can if you're in knoxville june 26th battleship yeah definitely uh it's gonna be fun all right thanks for listening guys we'll see you next week